Well, welcome back, or maybe I'm the one who's been missing out. Uh, I'll welcome myself back. Uh, looking forward to learning what you've learned about this book, you know, because it'd be great if I'd read it. I'm kidding. I, I, uh, <laughs> you can maybe catch me up on the last couple, though. But, um, but let's pray. The Lord be with you. God, we ask that as we contemplate the last week of Jesus, the understanding of his mission and ministry, that you would guide us to be bold in following your will in new ways to bring your kingdom on earth in ways that have never been seen before. Amen. Okay, so, you know, I think it might be most helpful since I don't know what you've talked about if you sort of help me out. And I think a good way to do it is to say, you know, right before the priest took everybody away, um, we talked about Palm Sunday, right? And, and this will be helpful, actually, for me to do a small review for you, having just been and seen, seen the geography it's really something to look at. Um, we're going to ignore those things, but I, I really can't resist writing in blank space. I hope this doesn't bother you. This is like my, my OCD coming out. You know, I, I told you before we went on our trip, and this is accurate, that the Temple Mount is something like this, and it is gigantic, and I mean like three or four football fields in size. And there is a wall along the perimeter. Uh, you know, the western wall, if you've ever seen a picture, is this retaining wall right here. This, it, it was not part of the temple. It was a retaining wall. And it's huge. If you've seen it, it's like 50 feet high. And that was backfilled with ground to make the temple mount. And sure enough, this ginormous thing is what was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to know if you're on a trip, our guide is, I'm confident our guide is wrong. The Court of the Gentiles was the marketplace of Jerusalem. That meant that there were all kinds of vendors and tents and money changers up here, which makes sense because it's the Acropolis. You, you, you know that word. The bottom is called the Polis, that's the city and the Acropolis is the one up high. You could have seen the thing from miles away. I just want to make sure you know. Our pilgrims will tell you, when you come up the Mount of Olives, it's right in front of you, and it's huge. And, of course, what would have happened is there was a, a walled area here to separate Gentiles from Jews. So if you're a Gentile, all the dots are your marketplace. If you're Jewish, you can go into this rectangle, even if you're a woman. Men could go into that box, and the high priest could go into that tiny little box one day a year on Yom Kippur to offer a sacrifice, and there would have been a big altar represented by that circle there. Okay? Now, this is situated on top of uh, what's called Mount Moriah, and that's thought to be the rock on which Abraham bound his son Isaac. If you're Muslim, this would be the rock would have been where Ishmael was bound, and Abraham took the rock with him to Mecca. Okay? Here it is. And interestingly enough, there's a gateway here that sort of looks like this. Two gates in a row, and, and that's preserved till today, and it's called the Golden Gate. And just to give you a great idea, all of this is running downhill into something called the Kidron Valley. 
And then, when you get to the bottom of the Kidron, you go uphill onto the Mount of Olives. And, and this is helpful to know, having just been there, and you, sometimes we lose sight of the geography. Here's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right there. And we think the Palm Sunday procession starts somewhere like here, on the Mount of Olives, passes the Garden of Gethsemane or goes right through it. It's that small. Comes up through the Kidron Valley into the gates of the temple. Which would mean that it was a very highly visible thing. Okay? And we know in our book that that happened on Sunday. Right? So there's one other thing I should show you. The book author tells you that there's another procession on Palm Sunday, and, and, and I think this is this right. You know, our guide told us there's no archaeological evidence that Pontius Pilate proceeded on Sunday, although I'll tell you it makes a lot of sense that he did. He certainly did process from Caesarea Maritima, which we went to, which was really a fantastic cosmopolitan city, and everybody will tell you. Anybody been to Del Mar in California where Seabiscuit ran? Anybody seen there? There's a horse track sort of in this mucky bog there in La Jolla. Well, in Caesarea Maritima, there's a chariot track directly against the Mediterranean. There's like a two-foot wall separating the Mediterranean from the Circus Maximus, frankly. So, so Del Mar is not nearly as cool as Caesarea Maritima. I just want you to know. Okay? Um, here's what happened, we think, on Sunday. Here is a fortress... I did not do that right, orthogonally. Here's a fortress that's called the Antonio. And it has four big towers, taller than the temple. Okay, that's not a great orthogonal drawing. And it has steps here. And there's a different gateway into Jerusalem. And it sure seems like Pontius Pilate's procession came in that way, and Jesus's came in that way. Uh, just to, to verify that, this would be the place where Jesus was tried by Pilate on Friday. Uh, here on these steps, it's called Gabbatha. And uh, these towers, taller than the temple, were so that Herod could control the temple militarily. And then since Herod the Great is dead, Rome now has the ability to completely control the temple from the higher ground. This is sort of the last place taken during the Jewish Revolt of 70, right? So when they tell you on Sunday there's two processions, here come the tanks, here come the unicycles, and, and, and that's, that's Palm Sunday, okay? Monday. I wasn't even here when we talked about Monday. Is anybody willing to review what you learned about Monday? You did this with Josh, right? You did this two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Any, any recollection of Monday? This is the fig tree. Sure is. This is the fig tree. So reminder of the event on Monday. And it starts Sunday night. Okay? So Sunday is the procession. And then Jesus sees a fig tree. And it's not fig season, which means there's no leaves, there's no blossoms, 
There's no reason to expect there should be a fig. And Jesus looks at the tree and says, may you never bear fruit again. And then he goes to the temple and he looks around, right? And he leaves. And then the next day, Jesus goes on Monday and what's happened to the fig tree? It's all withered up. And then he goes to the temple. And this is, of course, where he starts to overturn the tables, right? Remember that the authors of the book tell you that this is more a literary device than a reality thing. And I think that becomes really helpful because what, what I grew up spending a lot of time doing is talking about whether the event happened instead of what the event means. And I think establishing whether the event happened is, of course, some importance to our factoid brain. But I think the truth is what's more important is what the event means, ultimately, because if the event happened exactly as described, in some ways, that's neat, but so what? Right? So what? And this is where I think the authors do something very interesting. And, and in some ways, they help deal with this problem, which is like, wow, Jesus is a cranky guy, you know? Like, why would he expect a, a tree not in season to have fruit? That would be unreasonable of him. And the poor tree, you know, just to wither it up. Of course, they say it's really not about the tree. The tree is telling you that the temple is fruitless and it's going to be withered up, right? And, and sure enough, that comes to pass um, about 40 years after the resurrection. And this is also the, the, the chapter where the authors remind you that there's something called the temple tax. And that the temple tax is something that it, you'll find in, in uh, Jewish law after the temple's built. So you'll find this instituted uh, that you pay basically when you become an adult man. It happens one time in your life at your bar mitzvah. However, since about 167 before the Common Era or BC, the temple tax was required of everybody every year. And so it's very possible that this is what Jesus is upset about, partially upset about, is that instead of paying a shekel once in their life, now it's a shekel a year which for people who are, who are really living on the edge economically becomes exorbitant. And the book tells you, actually, it's more than a shekel, as if we even know what that is, right? That's a, that's a weight measure of silver. More than that, uh, it, it amounted to about 20% of their income every year when it was supposed to be once in their lifetime, right? And so the authors tell you that, that a good way to understand this, I think, is Jesus is looking at the temple as a place where power is given religious sanctity, which Jesus ultimately condemns. Is that a good coverage? Does that sound right? Whether you remember it or not, I can tell you that's what the authors are saying. <laughs> that's absolutely what they're saying. And, and some of us don't like it because ultimately they're saying that Jesus is, is uh, frankly having a lot to do with politics, but that is how our authors read it, that the, all of this is very political, and the problem with the temple is that it's become a haven, a den of robbers, right? A place where robbers can go and rest at night and think 
and think that they're getting divine authority to do the robbing that they're doing. Now, I, I think it's helpful to return to this diagram for just a second. You'll read competing theories, and I'll tell you, our guide in Jerusalem, there are some steps right here, little tiny steps, all of different increments. And this is true, they exist today and they date back to the time of Herod. Our guide told us that this is where the money changers were. And, and, and say so that when Jesus comes here, look, that's relatively small, you, you, you see, area-wise. Jesus flips over the tables there. If you want to know more about that, um, they required that uh, the coins in the temple could not have the insignia of a human being or any graven image. That's good Judaism, right? All the coins had the portraits of either Alexander the Great or uh, Caesar Augustus. In fact, Chris Leedy bought one, right, that would have been in circulation at the time. It has Alexander, and he looks like Heracles or Hercules. That's, that's idolatry. You can't have that coin in the temple, right? So, so they're changing it outside here to, to, so that you can go in there without idolatry. And what do the coins look like? Well, it, apparently the one they required is the, is the uh, Tyrian tetradrachma, which is of the highest quality of silver and therefore is really expensive. It doesn't have a graven image that would be offensive to the laws of Judaism. But, you know, you know how currency booths work, right? you lose money, right? <laughs> this is another problem that the authors address is that these people are basically taking the commission and religiously requiring people to make the transaction, right? If the money event happens here, everybody would have known about it. See how small that is in, in area. If the event happened up here, it would amount to flipping over a card table on a football field. All the research I've read, contrary to our guide in Jerusalem, says it happened up here, and it was more of a symbolic act than one that would have been noticed. Because if Jesus had shut down the Acropolis, he would have been killed that day. I just want to make sure you know that. We still operate that way. You know, Brown versus the board of education that had nothing to do with ethnic rights. It was all about interstate, interstate commerce. We know about this, right? The Supreme Court forced segregation because it was a money problem, not because it was a civil rights problem. You can go back and read the case, right? Interstate commerce is what that case was all about. This is about interstate commerce. If Jesus had ceased it, <laughs> it would have been a problem on Monday, <laughs> right? Not, not, we wouldn't have made it to Friday, okay? So it's important to think about Again, what this means is not necessarily how it happened, it's what it means, right? And it represents Jesus overthrowing a system that he believes to be politically, economically, and religiously unjust all at the same time, okay? That's on Monday. Pilgrims who missed it, that's what we did. Is this okay? Am I giving, is it all right? Seems like that's not a lot to do for Monday, um, but, but it seems um, that actually may be kind of a big deal, right? Uh, then we get to Tuesday. And this is the one you did last week, right? Last week. Now, let me ask, do you have any recollection from last week about what happens on Tuesday? You don't want me to just, I mean, you're reading this book, you don't just want to spoon feed it, yeah, whatever. You may not even like the spoon I'm giving you, right? It, you may say, this spoon is really rough and bumpy and sharp and it's hurting my mouth. Um, 
Anyone? I'll give you a hint. Tuesday is like teaching day, right? Tuesday's teaching day. This is where people come up to Jesus and test him. In the temple, right? This is where Jesus is out there teaching. And just to return to the diagram, right? We know that this is the place where sacrifices of animals happen, right? This is the place out here where commerce happens. This is the place in here where Jewish men and women can come. But notice how it's separated by a wall from the cultic sacrifice place. In this smaller rectangle here, and I'll put two arrows on it so you can see which one I'm talking about, this one right here, that's where there were often people having discussions about what the Torah meant. Okay? So, so think about it. Commerce for everybody. Out here we've got basically an impromptu school, philosophical conversation. What does it mean to follow God? How do we keep the rules? Here is where animals are offered and consumed. Okay? So the, the, the walls actually really do separate what's happening in the area quite well. So we think that most of what happens on Tuesday is happening here where the double arrows are pointed in that court of teaching and conversation. Okay? And, and notice then that becomes really important because they come to Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes to the emperor or not? If you say no, prepare to be crucified that day. Wouldn't have made it to Friday. If you say yes, prepare for everybody to stone you. Right? This is what we call the double bind. <laughs> uh, Jesus says something quite interesting. Show me a coin. This puts the people in a really bad place because, you see, they weren't supposed to have that coin in there. They were supposed to have traded it. And oddly enough, one of them has a coin. Now, whoever has that coin has just now identified himself as having violated the very system they're imposing on everybody else. And what do you think about that? Quite clever, isn't it? <laughs> uh, now, the person asking the question has lost face. And so what the authors will tell you is, this is really more about Jesus being very sly on his feet, but also asking some really good questions. Whose picture is it? And they say, well, it's the emperor's. Very well. Give to the emperor what is the emperor, and give to God's what is God's. Right? And the authors tell you, one way to read this is sort of like, I just got out of a trap. Right? Because what does that mean? And the other way is to think, what is God's and what actually belongs to the emperor? And of course, the authors will tell you that the land of Israel is God's, that the temple is God's, and the emperor doesn't belong in either of those places dominating people. And that's ultimately their read. Do you remember this one? It's okay. This is also the day, right, where the person comes up to Jesus and says, you know, um, which is the greatest commandment? And, and, and Jesus says, of course, right, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? That uh, other thing it's important to know, anybody ever been into a Jewish household or hotel room? There's something like this outside. Ever seen this before? If you've been to Israel, you've seen it. Every hotel room has it. It's called a mezuzah. And by the way, if you're not sure, if you ever go up to somebody's door and you see one of those, probably Jewish. When I say probably, be, I mean like 99.9% .9 <laughs> 
Jewish one way or another. Christian people in general don't have those. I have one outside my office now. Now. Um, and, and of course, uh, what's inside of that little box is a rolled up scroll that has Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your love, with all your soul, with all your nephesh, and with all your moededka, with everything left over after that. That's how it reads in, in, um, in Hebrew. Your heart is the center of your will. We usually think of that as our brain, right? Your willpower is in your brain. So, so the, the injunction is to love God with all your will, with all your soul. Where is your soul? We usually think it's in our heart, don't we? You know I mean? That's where we put our emotions and stuff. Well, in Hebrew, and, 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 and Polly's heard me say this before, um, in Hebrew, your soul is actually located in your neck. It's your nephesh. And you don't have a soul. You are a soul. So the injunction is to love God with your totality, with your will, with all that you are, which, by the way, is located in your breathing because the ancient people understood well that when you stop breathing, you die. And that's your soul because, remember, when God makes the people out of the dirt, the dirt becomes alive when God breathes a soul into them, right? They're nephish, and it's, it's right there. In your, don't think about it as your vertebrae. That would be too medical. Think of it, really, as right here, your ability to breathe in and out. And then love God with your moedeka, everything left over after that. So again, by the way, there's nothing left over after that. But if there were, love God with that. And then love your neighbor as yourself, which comes out of Leviticus, right? So, so here is Jesus is doing some really fancy footwork. Because what's the greatest commandment? If you say honor the Sabbath day, well, there's nine other ones, right? So again, this is very, very clever. And the authors say he does this adroitly, but also notice that theologically he's offering a lot of insight. And basically what Jesus is saying that's important, and I think we, we've kind of g- grasped this a little bit, even though it's always hard to practice it, is that loving your neighbor as yourself is loving God, and vice versa. But this too cannot happen in isolation. I and mean, that's quite good. And that comes really back, of course, to his criticism of a temple that is not doing either one of those things. It's not loving God because it's not loving the neighbor. Does that make sense? That's what the authors are, are, are arguing. I, well, I think that's what they're arguing. Um, he also tells the parable, remember, about the wicked tenants. The people perceive he's told this parable against them. Remember, this is when a wine press is dug and a wall is built around it, and the people think it belongs to them because the owner hasn't been there in a long time. And so when the owner sends people, they abuse them, and then the owner sends a child, and they kill the child. A lot of us think, oh, the child is Jesus. But Jesus couldn't possibly be talking about himself because he's still alive. Or maybe he would, he could. The point you have to remember is the people in the vineyard are completely irrational about whose stuff it is. If they decided it belongs to them, and they've forgotten that they're stewards, and that they're there really to produce wonderful fruit and share it, and again, think back to Monday. They're not producing any fruit, and they're definitely not sharing it. And that becomes the criticism that the authors say is being levied against the religious power system. This is way too much of a, of a lecture. I know you all read this. Um, by whose authority are you teaching? 
That's what they ask. And Jesus asked that really key question. You tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from earth, right? I don't want to regurgitate the whole chapter, but remember, Tuesday is the big, big teaching block day. And um, there's, also, there's also this day is the widow's might, right? Which the authors tell you is not just a story about giving everything you have to God. They tell you it, it's an indictment against the religious system for demanding that from the lady. Uh, there's a lot of sources that agree with that, actually. Uh, it's not just that these guys have, have come up with this great thing. Now, of course, the story is great that, that we offer freely to God. That, there's nothing wrong with that interpretation. Uh, in fact, I think it's pretty life-giving, but, but, I, but I think they're also saying it means something else, too. Right? And uh, the last one is Jesus talks about the temple being thrown down. What huge stones, teacher? And we went underneath and saw one of them that was 43 feet long and about 5 feet high and weighed 400, 500 tons, which is something like five jumbo jets full of luggage and cargo. Our person said five, but she said it like this because she was from New York. <laughs> she was. You wouldn't believe the scale of the stone, and, and nobody even knows how they moved it. I mean, nobody really has the understanding of how that one particular stone was moved, because it's really, really, really large. Uh, and of course, Jesus says all that stuff's going to be thrown down, right? All of it's going to come to an end. And, and, you know, the authors tell you it's possible that this is being written after that's happened, we know that happened in the year 70 A.D. or C.E., whoever did the dates, right, when, when Rome came in after a revolt and threw all this down. Um, but we also sort of understand that, that Jesus is kind of saying that there's really no longevity to systems of oppression. They will, they will collapse and will fall down, right? Hopefully. <laughs> and the question is, what is built in their place, Right? That got through Tuesday. Did I miss anything that was really interesting for you? The only other topic that they, that they discuss, and they'll continue to do this on each day, right, is the idea about sacrifice. And, and they, they really do this quite a bit on the Monday day. Where they talk about how sacrifices are really either, usually either gifts to deities or meals or both. You're going to hear in the in the reading today, this is interesting, Samuel goes to anoint David. And David king, because Saul is not a good king. And the guise in which he goes, because Saul won't be happy with this, is that he's going to offer a sacrifice. So he takes a heifer up to sacrifice it. And then he starts looking at Jesse's kids. And not this one, not this one, not this one. All the good-looking kids God's not interested in. God wants... Well, actually, David's described as a good-looking kid. It's kind of funny, right? But, but the regular good-looking kids are no good. And, and, and Samuel says to, to Jesse, David's father, bring David, we won't sit down until I've seen him. And what he means is, we've offered the life of this animal to God as a gift. God is inviting us to share a meal on God's table, an altar, but we won't start eating until you bring the boy. So these are people that haven't had meat in a long, long, long time. They only have it on a festival day. And now they're being told, you don't get to have the meat until I see the kid. 
So they hasten and bring the boy. I mean, this is just important to know. If you only had meat twice a year, you would hasten to bring the boy, right? Because it's hot, fresh now, you know? You don't want it cold and spoiled later. Does it make sense what I'm saying? And, and the authors tell you again, that's the idea of sacrifice. And, and since the 1100s, actually, we've gotten this really interesting idea that sacrifice is about suffering and pain. And of course, biblically, it's not about that at all. And, and you know, we talked about this on our, on our pilgrimage, of course. You can walk the Via Dolorosa in such a way that you just feel guilty for all the suffering, but, but that's not what the Via Dolorosa is supposed to be about. It, it's not supposed to be about feeling guilty for how much that hurt Jesus. It's supposed to be participating with him and thinking about offering ourselves to one another so that there can be life, new life in the community, right? That's what the authors are going to say over and over again. Okay, that brings us now to Wednesday. Is that okay? Sorry, my recap was really, really long. Uh, by the way, it's important to, to note this, because Bob was really astute on our trip. That according to Mark, this is probably the second time Jesus went to Jerusalem in his life. The first time was when he was 12 and taken to the temple and left behind with baggage, right? This is only the second time three of the gospel writers put Jesus in Jerusalem. John puts him there a third time. I just want you to know. John puts him there at the start of his ministry and at the end, okay? But Mark, Matthew, and Luke only put him there twice as a 12-year-old, and for Holy Week. So, it probably was, what's that? 65-mile walk. Well, that's at least three days walking fast, right? Three days you're not getting paid anything, which is tough when you're on a, on a subsistence wage, right? I mean, this is a really, really big deal. And that's one way. Right? So you're, th you're thinking about basically a week of walking to get there, and then when you're there, you can't really work. You're going to have to buy food. You can't really bring your food with you because there's no preservation other than salted meat, right? Salted fish. I guess you could bring a bunch of salted fish with you. It'd be delightful. Um, <laughs> okay. All right, we ready for Wednesday? If I miss something, you just say, Right? Okay. Today is the day that Jesus is anointed the Messiah. You're going to hear about this reading um, today in church that the way somebody was made a king in the Hebrew Bible is by anointing them with oil, not with a crown. So we don't know who the first person to wear a crown was. We, we just, we don't. We, we think of crowns because of medieval Europe and we superimpose that on people did kings ever wear them? We don't know. You, anybody seen the Egyptian crown? The one that Tutankhamun wore when he was alive? It's, it's not a, a thing like this, right? It's, it's kind of got a headband on it and, a, and two little kind of ribbons coming down in the back and there's a snake up here. Uh, it's really small. It's not high key like the burial mask is at all, right? So, so we didn't really know about Hebrew crowns at all, but we do know is that when kings are made by the prophet Samuel, they're made by taking a horn. Think about a, a, a ram's horn, 
this is the thing called the shofar that you blow on, the, on Yom Kippur and sometimes to begin the Shabbat. Ken Jurgens has one. I think he's going to blow it at the Easter Vigil when we make the great noise, because it makes a great noise. Anyway, you take one of those horns and you fill it up with oil, and you dump the oil on somebody's head. And when you've anointed somebody with oil, they become literally the Messiah, which in Hebrew means the anointed one. Christ is the Greek word that means anointed one. Who anointed Jesus? Yeah, and this is real important. It was not John the Baptist. Why not? He didn't have any oil. <laughs> he would have had to immerse Jesus in some olive oil. And let me tell you, that's really gross <laughs> and really expensive. So it didn't happen. This lady is the lady who does it. And think about the scene here. And this is, this is helpful to think about. I have some pure nard. I have it in incense form and in oil because I bought it in Israel. At the time, the, the nard was worth a year's wages. Now, we've seen inflation move around. You know, probably when we started working, a year's wages at a good number was a lot lower than it is now. Is that fair to say? So let's think about in this community, a year's wages is $90,000. I think that's a pretty fair number in our, in our community. A little more, a little less, right? But adjust it for the mean. She takes $90,000 and converts it to nothing. Because once she opens it up, $90,000 just went in the air. There's no salvaging it. You can't get it back. You can't take sponges onto Jesus and wring them back into a pitcher. It's just gone. And this lady, we don't know anything about her except people thought she was a sinner, right? Judas is really upset about this because he says that money could have been given to the poor. That's a pretty fair suggestion, don't you think? I mean, instead of putting a stained glass window in the church, we could have given that money to the poor. That's a very real thing to think about, you know. Also very real to think about that Jesus is not anointed by a prophet. He's not anointed by a priest. He's not anointed by anybody in the temple. He's anointed by someone that they've thrown out for two reasons. She's a woman and she's sinful. And she's extravagant if we added a third problem, right? And, and this is the moment in his ministry when Jesus becomes the Messiah. Not until now is he technically. It's a pretty interesting message about anti-domination and who's in and who's out, right? That a sinful woman knows who he is and the Pharisees and the scribes don't. Then we get to hear this business, right, about taking up your cross. This happens on Wednesday. Anyone who would follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Right? And they talk a little bit about this, and, and we talked about it on our trip some, that, that the cross, first of all, would have looked nothing like that. This is maybe helpful to give you the, the historical information about it, and then what, what it probably would have meant when Jesus said it. Um, <clears throat> you know, 
crucifixion happens outside the city, <clears throat> as do all capital punishment, because you don't want to desecrate the city with blood of somebody. Everybody kind of believed in that. So right outside the city gates, you would expect to find <clears throat> posts that are set in the ground. Think about a telephone pole with a notch in it, right? Because a telephone pole will hold a notch. And then the person to be crucified probably carried basically a two-foot-long two-by-four. So when you see these movies or these pictures of Jesus carrying a railroad tie, get real. Anybody ever picked up a railroad tie on their own? Yeah, you wouldn't be able to carry it very far, I'll just tell you, right? It's, get real, okay? Um, when you see Romans going up on ladders, get real. No soldier is going to go up a ladder that they don't need to go up. Just, no. People are crucified at eye level. And you may say, well, how did their feet not touch the ground? Well, they bent them, right? And what you have to imagine is you take the two-by-four and you tie someone's arms to it. You pick up the two-by-four and drop it in the notch. How are they going to get out? They're not. How are they going to break the two-by-four? They're not. So people sit there at eye level for three to five days. In Jesus' case, about five hours, right? Because we think he would have died from shock. Um, Shock is where your system just shuts down, and you mostly understand that. The Romans offer a mild sedative that's wine mixed with myrrh. Mild sedative. That said that your body wouldn't go into shock, so that you would take five days instead of five hours. That's the goal. It's not humane by the Romans. It's calculated to know how to make this last longer. Causes of death are dehydration, asphyxiation, and shock. And when you hear later about the scribes and the Pharisees spitting in Jesus' face, you need to imagine his face is right here at eye level. People are crucified naked. Uh, they're outside the city walls, which means animals can come in the night coyotes, etc., right, birds. You can't really fight a bird off. You're tied down, possibly also nailed, right? So this is what happens. And it happens right outside the city gate, and you're thinking that in Jerusalem, the old city, there's two or four gates at the most, one in each compass point. It happens right there so that everybody coming in and out of the city sees what happens when you mess with Rome. So the authors do a really good job telling you that this is a, a, a punishment that is intended only for people who are A, poor, and B, commit treason or are perceived to be traitors to the regime. And it's a billboard of what happens when you mess with Rome. People would have seen it all the time. It wasn't just Jesus. The two people do his left and right. The authors tell you are not thieves or brigands. They're insurrectionists. And that's really important that they tell you that. We've only figured that out in maybe the last 20 years. And that information's really slow to trickle down. But you know what happens when you steal. You don't get crucified. You get your hand cut off or your thumbs cut off, right? So, again, it's really helpful to hear this. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, according to the authors, he's not saying, just suffer. Just die slowly. He's saying, commit sedition against a corrupt and dominating system. Now, that's a, much, that's a pretty interesting way to think about the teaching, isn't it? And I think that's why on Monday they talk about how sacrifice isn't about suffering. Because if we equate the cross with suffering and Jesus says, go suffer, 
then any suffering we do is following God's will, when I think most of us know suffering is not part of God's will, and our job is to alleviate suffering from people who should not have to suffer. People who are abused systemically in their houses. People who know the abuse of racism and tyranny and poverty. We're called to alleviate that suffering, not impose it, right? And alleviating that suffering, I think, is what the authors are trying to get us to consider Jesus means when he says, take up your cross, which is commit insurrection against systems that distance people from God's love and the fullness of life. So what might that look like? The authors don't exactly say this. That might look like marching from Birmingham to Selma. Right? Did people get crucified? No. Did they get sprayed with fire hoses and beat with batons? Yes. Did they do it just to suffer, or did they do it to show the system was wrong? You see, start thinking about these criteria, right? If it was just to hurt themselves, nobody would have cared. Am I right about that? Well, I think so. You'd say you're a masochist. Those monks in Vietnam that lit themselves on fire, did they do it just to hurt, or did they do it to say, whether you agree with their method or not, this whole way of being is wrong? Of course, everybody looks at the sign differently. But, but this is the encouragement the authors say that's happening. And remember then what they say is that really what Jesus is calling us to is to participate with him in that enterprise instead of allowing for him to just be our substitute. And this is again coming back to the whole understanding of sacrifice. Did Jesus do it for us or are we called to do it with him? And ultimately maybe it can be both and, right? But I don't know about you, I sure see domination systems at work in the world. They often benefit me, frankly. So in some ways, you know, I'm more okay with them. <laughs> and that's the real problem. I don't think Jesus just took care of that once and for all. You, you, you know what I mean? And, and that's where I think this becomes a, a critical call here that the authors are raising. Uh, the last thing the author really says that I want to hold up to you is that we have no motive, motive, motive for Jesus, uh, Judas betraying Jesus. We have no motive other than he was offended at Jesus accepting the generous gift. In the Gospel of John, the author tells us, well, Judas was stealing, but Mark doesn't say that. Mark says he's fundamentally confused about Jesus at this point. And ultimately betrays Jesus to get a tithe back of the money that was just spent. To put that in context, the perfume cost, what did I say, $80,000? And Judas betrays Jesus for $8,000. In fact, I think we could impute to Judas a not bad motive. He really is trying to raise money for the poor. But ultimately, he represents, the authors say, the failure that all of the disciples will, will go through. They all fail. Um, questions about Wednesday? Let's, 
So we don't know the answer to that, but let's think through the average lifespan is 35 years. So when we hear Jesus is crucified at the age 30, he's towards the end of this line. How old were the other disciples? Likely less than 35. Peter is married, for, for sure, so he's at least 13. <laughs> That's all we know. Because the tradition says they lived longer than Jesus, and tradition puts Peter being crucified in Rome in 50, so that's 20 years. Maybe Peter was 15. Gosh, that would explain why they're so dumb all the time, wouldn't it? <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Normally, I sure think the disciples of being the same age of Jesus but they could have been teenagers. A little more. Could be in their 20s. Hey, they could be 80 years old. They could be whatever you think, right? Because the truth is, we all know 80-year-old people that are about four. <laughs> and 50-year-old people that are about four. And then, of course, we know the rare 12-year-old that's about 50, right? I mean, we've met those people. It's a great question. What it reminds us is how rarely we engage our imaginations when we read a text. Yeah, thanks. Samuel? Proximate cause, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a great question, and actually, there's been there's been some moments throughout the Christian tradition that have celebrated. Judas actually is as the best disciple because without him there wouldn't have been this. I, I, I think it's worth asking the question and, and, and there is. Be, be prepared to think poorly of your priest here but I, I think it's just worth asking this question. What if we hadn't killed Jesus? What if instead of the Jewish leaders, it's not all the Jews, the book's very good about this. What if instead of the Jewish leaders killing him, they'd said, we should repent? <laughs> What's helpful about the authors, so I, so I want to sit and think about this, right? Good Friday is only good in retrospect. It's frankly an awful day. And if we, if we say how good it was, I think, we're, I think we're missing some fundamental humanity, right? There's really nothing good about Friday. Better Friday, again, would have been where we say, leave him alone. We'll change our lives in accordance with this message. 
I mean, isn't that really why we go to church today? Hopefully to change our lives in accordance with better, with, with better principles and thoughts and with God's will for us. So if you don't buy that Good Friday is the best outcome, right, then, then that, that takes care of part of your question. The other thing is, I think the authors are helpful because what they say is Judas is no more of a failure than any other disciple. But he, like us, we often fail to follow Jesus on the way. And I think then this becomes this interesting thing, right, to, to look at what happens to Judas because, again, Jesus includes him in Maundy Thursday. Jesus washes his feet. Jesus shares the Last Supper with him. Would Jesus have wanted him to hang himself from remorse? My theology says no. Have I known that kind of shame and having felt I betrayed somebody utterly? Yes, so in some ways the story is very real. But I think actually he becomes a counterexample for what real discipleship looks like. And I don't mean to criticize him. I think that's true of every single disciple in the book. They don't really ever do anything right. And that becomes helpful to raise up before us. They don't ever do anything right, which is why there's hope for us. <laughs> it's hopeful. There's always this critical question. If Jesus came today, would we kill him again? Of course, we like to tell ourselves we wouldn't. And I think the authors are actually asking us to reconsider our pat answer to that question. Because if Jesus were to come in and challenge the American way, I'd get mad. Wouldn't you? In some ways, I should hope you would. But I'm pretty sure Jesus does challenge the American way. I mean, I'm pretty sure of that. And so again, I, I, I think, Samuel, your question's great, and, and, I, don't, and I don't know the answer. I, I think the authors are asking us to reconsider a lot of different things. And I, and I think the important thing for us is, in Jesus' opinion, Judas isn't any worse than anybody else. <laughs> His actions have different consequences. Retrospectively, we've, we've decided that they were good things, although they're terrible things, right? And I think it's actually really helpful to give Judas really good motives. He's followed this guy. He wants him to be a certain way. They all want him to be a certain way. James and John argue about who will sit on his left and right in the coming kingdom. And, and of course, what they mean is who will be the, the viceroy and the petty duke in the, new, in the new empire he's going to create. Of course they mean that. Golly, that's, I mean, I want to sit on his right and left as long as it doesn't cost me very much, right? <laughs> to be disillusioned by somebody who, who allows $80,000 to pour down their head 
I, I understand that. I remember going into a really nice cathedral and thinking, wow, you spent all that money on that church. Why didn't you blank? And of course, that's very short-sighted, isn't it? It, 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 it's not fair because it starts with a conclusion <laughs> which is the people don't care about other people and it's all for themselves and of course I think what we realize as Episcopalians there's lots of answers and there's lots of middle ground and that churches are supposed to be places that inspire us not just to feel better about ourselves but inspire us to walk with Jesus on the way and that's the point of art not that it affirms our current preconceptions but it challenges them right so that we can follow Jesus on the way. It's really interesting to watch people look at art for the first time and say, I don't like it. Who cares if you like it? That's not what art's for. It's not to be liked. It's to break our icons, right? That's the point. And in some ways, disturbing images can be really helpful for us. <laughs> Obviously, we can't live in a state of being disturbed all the time, right? And there's this natural progression, right? But, but all that I think is important to remember. And I think even when we consider somebody like Judas, really, who is, let's not pretend that Peter's not a bigger failure. He lies about Jesus multiple times. He's the one who should have known better. You know? Even after the resurrection, he doesn't get Jesus. If you love me, feed my lambs. I do love you. Feed my lambs. <laughs> I do love you. <laughs> feed my lambs, right? You remember this one? Kali, isn't that hopeful for you and me? I mean, really, isn't that hopeful? And that becomes, in some ways, a really good way to read the Hebrew Bible. Abraham was a lousy guy. He just, he, a lot of times he was lousy. David was a pretty lousy guy, you know? I mean, he totally had this non-consensual relationship with one of his friend's wives and then killed him to cover it up, right? I mean, that's just pretty lousy. And God's able to work with people like that. Which means there's hope for me. You know, I mean, that's just pretty darn hopeful, right? Heroes are not perfect people. They're, they're people who sometimes participate with God in the world, you know? And, and we're called to do that more and more and more. To increase our participation with God in the world. I, and I think that's a, a very hopeful, helpful trajectory. Okay, that brings us to Thursday. Why is it called Maundy Thursday? Of course, they tell you because it, that word means mandate. And in, and in John, Jesus says, a new commandment, a new mandate, I give you love one another as I've loved you, right? And, and this is that big day and um, where, of course, we have the Last Supper in the upper room. We went to the upper room. You know, what's interesting is they converted it into a mosque. This, I just think this is cute to tell you. Um, you walk into the room. It's very big, the, the supposed site. And here in the middle of the room is something that looks like a chimney. And all the tourists came in and were taking pictures of the chimney. I guess they thought the Holy Spirit came down the chimney. Um, 
on Pentecost. That's Santa Claus. That's a mirab, and it shows you which way is Mecca, right? <laughs> this is an amazing thing. It's to see these Maranatha tour, um, you know, Southern Baptist Christians taking pictures of the mirab and thinking it was the channel for the Holy Spirit, which I think is great. Why not, you know? <laughs> anyway, it's a really big room, almost the size of this one, just to put in perspective maybe two-thirds the size, right, laid out like a rectangle. And, and, you know, what the authors tell you and what our guide told you is Jesus doesn't tell his disciples where they're going. He says, ask, you know, go ask that guy where the room, if the room's ready. He doesn't say go down A Street to number 123 and that's on the second story, right? In some ways, Jesus might be aware that people are following him, right? They go up there and again, I think what, what they emphasize that becomes really important is that um, one of the fundamental things Jesus does is, is includes people in meals. And that including somebody in a meal is really like incorporating them into your family. And Jesus incorporates people into his family that don't understand him. The author doesn't tell you this, but incorporates people into the family that don't like each other. Because after all, Judas and Simon the zealot would have categorically hated Levi called Matthew the tax collector. They could not possibly have liked each other categorically and they were included at the same table. And what the authors argue, and this is very interesting, I've told you this for the last year and a half, is that really uh, the better way to understand what's happening at Maundy Thursday is that this is about strength for a journey and really that's the older way of understanding the Eucharist. You're not coming up to an altar where Jesus has been sacrificed again. You're coming up to a table to be strengthened in your spirit and your body for the journey that follows when you leave. And in the Church of England, I told you this, Thomas Cranmer and ahead of him, you know, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, in, in, after Henry VIII had his, had his um, first Reformation in 1534, the liturgy was about the table and the meal. Why do we talk about altars? Because we use the Scottish rite. St. Andrew is on the Episcopal flag, you know, the X. That's the Scottish rite. And Scotland, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots, <laughs> was Catholic. And so in the Roman Catholic tradition, it really was an altar where a sacrifice was recapitulated and because our first bishop was made bishop in Scotland, not England, the Scottish Rite is in the American Prayer Book. You'll see it more in uh, Rite 1, Eucharistic Prayer 1, which is a prayer we don't use. <laughs> I'm not sorry about that. I can't pray that authentically, so I, so I won't. It's just better I not get up and pray something I don't believe in in front of you. Does that make sense? We use Rite 1, Eucharistic Prayer 2, which is less like that. <laughs> and, and then, of course, in Rite 2, we've even traveled a little bit further. It's a memorial of our redemption, which you wouldn't even say in the Anglican Church. Really, it is a meal for the journey. And the, the authors argue this. I'm not making this up, am I? You read this on Thursday? If you haven't read Thursday, they're going to argue it. And again, that's how they try to revisit the whole concept of sacrifice, is that it's about strengthening us not something happening as penal substitution, right? It's not something Jesus does for us. He does because of us, right? I mean, ultimately, again, will we kill him again? Okay, um, 
the other thing that he, he draws out that's really, really important, right? The foot washing, of course, is not in Mark. It's, it's in John only, right? And the other couple things he draws out is it's really important to remember that when the Jews are the ones doing things, that does not mean all Jewish people. Because remember, on Palm Sunday, people were laying down branches. What the authors will tell you is that on Friday, when people are saying, crucify him, it's not those people. People were delighted by his teachings in the temple. Who didn't like them? The Sadducees. Some of the scribes. Some of the Pharisees who are Jewish leaders. So imagine that on Friday, the people saying crucify him was a much more smaller and selective gathering than the people he talked to all week. Right? If we're not careful about that, we end up with some anti-Semitic threads being sewn into the gospel. And what's helpful to know is that the word Jew, even in the Gospel of John, doesn't mean somebody who practices Judaism. It means somebody who lives in the territory of Judea. So this word, when we see Jews in the Gospels, could include Roman citizens who worship Zeus. They're being called Jews, not as a religious designation, but as a geographic one. They live in modern Palestine, or modern Israel plus Palestine. Does this make sense what I'm saying? The authors draw that out, and it's really, really important. And of course, the last thing they say that's really interesting on Thursday, I hope you find this interesting, is when he's examined at like four in the morning by Caiaphas, you know, and they say, are you the son of man or the son of God? The authors tell you he could have said one of two things. I am or am I? Now that's an interesting, anybody ever considered it backward before? Is it helpful to know that linguistically they're right? It could be, am I? And that sure would match the tenor of what happens later, where Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you say I am. <laughs> and of course we know that's the truth. Pilate does say that he is. That's the, what the placard says above the cross, right? This is what happens to kings of the Jews. I hope that you're enjoying this book, even if you don't agree with it. Right? Because that's not why we read books, to agree with ourselves already. <laughs> uh, next week, we're going to finish the rest of the week. We have to do it because the week after next is Palm Sunday. And, and we won't talk too much about the book on Palm Sunday. We just don't have time for it. Okay? So I'm going to ask you, Sunday's real short, Saturday's pretty short. We're going to do Friday through Sunday for next week. Okay? Thanks, thanks for being here. See you next week. <laughs>